Well, we are in uh, Mark chapter 15. If you have a Bible there with you, if you don't, we can give you one from the front desk out there. But if you would turn to Mark 15, our text this morning is going to be verses 16 to 32. And as is our custom, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Mark writes, And the soldiers led him, that's Jesus, led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand, uh, one on his right, and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Um, well, here in Mark chapter 15, we kind of come to the uh, really the central event in the life and ministry and work of Christ, and that is the cross of Christ. If you're reading through the Gospels in, in general, or Mark in particular, this, this is the thing that the Gospel of Mark has been building forward to the entire time. If you've been with us throughout even part of this uh, series in the Gospel of Mark, you'll know that at a number of times Jesus talked about this coming to pass ahead of time. He prepared his disciples ahead of time for his crucifixion. If you look back on your own uh, later at Mark, the end of chapter Mark, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, again the next chapter, Mark 9, verse 31, and then once again, Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, three different times, uh, three chapters in a row, Jesus pulls the twelve aside and tells them of his upcoming death and resurrection. And all three times they didn't understand. They didn't get what he was saying. So Jesus foretold his own crucifixion a number of times. The cross is what the prophets, as we've even read from Isaiah 53 this morning, the, the, the cross of Christ is what the prophets spoke of and prophesied beforehand in the pages of the Old Testament. Places like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and many other places. Uh, the death of Christ on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29. That's what was prophesied all through the Old Testament. That is the point. 
Christ's death and resurrection, in a lot of ways, is the main point of the entire Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system. All of it was meant to point forward to Christ's work as our great high priest, as the sacrifice in our place. The the tabernacle, remember the, the portable temple before the temple was built? The tabernacle, all of its furnishings, the temple, all of its furnishings, everything about it, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and even the sacrifices themselves, all of that pointed forward to Christ's cross. All of it. All of it pointed forward to his work for our salvation. It's not an overstatement to say that the cross of Christ and his resurrection was the main thing spoken of throughout the entire Old Testament and really throughout all of Scripture. So the subject we're looking at this morning, uh, it, it's, you know, they, they talk about, they always say, you know, keep the main thing the main thing. Well, this is the main thing. Christ's teachings, as important as they are, the Sermon on the Mount and all that, uh, none of that means a thing without his death on the cross. We, we aren't saved by keeping God's commandments. That's never been the case. We're saved by Jesus dying in our place, and we obey God's commandments out of gratitude for that. The cross of Christ is a central thing. It's also central in our text. You might know if you were following along or as you read through the text uh, on your own, the words cross, the verb for cru- to be crucified, uh, they show up in one form or another at least eight times in these 17 verses. It's almost as if Mark's trying to make a point that the cross of Christ is really central to our to our passage. Now, when you come to a passage like this, now in some ways, uh, if you're like me, if you've read a certain passage or read your Bible a lot, sometimes it can kind of, you know, what do they say, familiarity breeds contempt. Now, you don't have contempt for Scripture, but it can tend to kind of lose its punch. It, it can feel like old hat, uh, so to speak. And so, you know, you come to a passage like this, not just as a preacher, but as a listener and as a reader, and you might kind of feel, uh, you wouldn't be wrong to feel kind of like, you know, what, did, what did God say to Moses at the burning bush? You know, take the sandals off your feet for the place that you're standing is holy ground. Well, this, this text feels a lot like holy ground. The, the burning bush, I don't think, has much on the cross in that, in that regard, if, if Moses had to take his shoes off there, I think we, in, at least inwardly, need to take off our shoes at, at holy ground like this. It's, uh, as a preacher, I can say it feels impossible to do this text justice. I, I, it, you're almost, you know, if you've ever preached or taught the Bible, you know, this is all throughout Scripture, but in a sense you get to this kind of a text and you almost don't know what to do. There's not enough words uh, to do it. To do it justice, that doesn't mean the sermon will be terribly long this morning, but um, it's it's really impossible to get all the way to the bottom of this kind of a text. You could sum up this text and others like it with the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 6 through 8, Paul says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the what? The ungodly or the wicked. And weak, weak's kind of a nice way of putting it. When we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, how? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now you put those two phrases together, Christ died for the ungodly, and then it says Christ died for us. That, that They're both referring to us, the ungodly. The wicked. That, that's the kind of people that Christ died for. That's what this text is about. Christ died for sinners. More than that, if you're in Christ by faith, 
You can say with us, Christ died for me. Christ died for us. The cross of Christ is how Paul, the Apostle Paul, measured the love of God for us. God shows his love for us in how? That Christ died for us. It's no wonder elsewhere in the book of Ephesians chapter 3 that Paul says the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. You just can't grasp it. It's in, in a sense, it's incomprehensible to us. We can understand it to a degree. We can, we can affirm it and accept it and praise God for it, but we can't really get our minds and hearts wrapped around it as we might hope to do. Well, the first thing we might see in our text this morning that we hope to see uh, is Mark telling us about the mocking, the mocking of Christ, the way that our Savior and Lord Christ was mocked even during his crucifixion. All of this Jesus endured willingly for us and for our salvation. And and the list of the groups of people that mocked him at this time is is pretty all-inclusive. The first group that we notice in our text that mocked and reviled Christ is the soldiers. In verses 16 through 20, the first part of our text, they make a cruel and painful mockery of Christ as king. And how do they do that? They clothe him in purple. You know, purple is a royal color, uh, kind of a, a kingly color. They place a crown on his head, but what's the crown made of? Thorns. It was meant to inflict pain and humiliation. Verse 17, then they, then they saluted him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, King of the Jews was, was the, the charge or the accusation that he had been wrongly convicted of, in a sense. It was the one charge he actually accepted. When, when Pilate asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? What did Jesus say? Basically, you said so. Everything else, he remained silent, but that one thing he affirmed, remember, him affirming that one thing was practically signing his own death warrant. The only thing he, that he, he didn't defend himself at all, if, if anything, by saying that that's what he was, he was guaranteeing that he would go to the cross. But that, that charge, King of the Jews, was actually written or inscribed on the cross. So when people walked by, you know, they could read what the person was convicted of, you know, and, and this was a public execution. You know, when it says that people walked by, that's really what it means. Passers-by were right there. They could read what he had done or what he had been accused of. John 19, verses 19 to 20 says this, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. You might know that at some of the, uh, some of the unbelieving Jews at the time got upset about that. They said, don't, don't say that it says King of the Jews. Say that it says he said he was. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. The rest of that passage says, Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. You're coming into the city, you're on the road, you're going to be walking right by it. And it says, And it was written in Aramaic, and in Latin, and in Greek. It was written for all to read. He could have put it, you know, just in Latin. He put it for all those travelers coming to the city, most of them would, would probably be able to read one or more of those languages, at least enough to understand what was said about Christ. And it was so it was written in those different languages that, so that many of the Jews, in verse 20 there, who were going to the, the city for that Passover from all over the world could read it. That's why it was written in those different languages. There was no mistaking who it was that was being crucified, and there was no mistaking what his supposed crime was. And what was Jesus' crime? Did he do anything wrong? Was there violent? Was he a man of violence? Was there any deceit found in his mouth? Isaiah 53? No. His crime was being the Messiah. The, the king of the Jews is kind of the, 
a way of, you know, a worldly way of translating his title of Messiah. The Messiah was the king, the anointed king. And they're saying, here's what we do to, a, to people that claim to be the king when we have an emperor in Rome. His crime, so to speak, was being the king of the Jews and the Messiah. Well, not only that, but the soldiers also struck his head and spat on him as they knelt before him in mock worship. Now, they're, they're just mocking him. They're acting, you know, the outward motion's like he's a king, but they're treating him with contempt and scorn. And remember, this is after, back in verse 15, Pilate had already had Jesus scourged. You know, scourging, I won't go into detail here, but scourging was a pretty brutal beating. I mean, a lot of people didn't survive that. So he's, he's gotten past that, and now he's being beaten again. And he's not even getting to the cross yet. It's almost a wonder that he made it to the cross. And, you know, uh, it's only then they led him away to be crucified. And so it's no wonder for us, I think, that our text tells us that Simon of Cyrene was made to carry the cross the rest of the way in Jesus' place. Jesus couldn't carry it. That's how badly he had been, had been beaten. The second group of people who mocked Christ were the passers-by, just the regular people on the way to celebrate the Passover. So you, you have to think that these were, at least in some way, religious people, people that claimed to hold to the religion uh, of Judaism, and yet they walked by their own Messiah and didn't recognize him when, when they saw him. Verses 29 to 30, Mark says this, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, you know, shaking their head at him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They derided him. They shook their heads at him. What does that mean? They thought Jesus was getting what he had coming to him. They thought that he was a criminal just like the other, the other two. They mocked his claim to have power and authority as well. They called on him to destroy the temple. In other words, they thought he actually claimed he was going to do that. It's not what he said. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they, they twisted his words as they always did to say that he was threatening the temple. They said, oh, you're, you're so powerful. Let's see you get down from the cross and rip the building down. You know, it's right there and raise it back up. They mocked him. That's what he had been falsely charged with saying. And then lastly, they say, called upon him to save himself. If you're so powerful, save yourself. Come down from the cross. They didn't know what they were saying, did they? If, if, what would have happened if Jesus had done what they said? None of us would ever have any hope of salvation and forgiveness at all, certainly not them themselves. The chief priests and scribes also got in on the act. They mocked him. Verse 31 to 32, they said this, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Think about that. They acknowledged that Jesus saved people. With their own lips, they acknowledged his righteousness, his sinlessness, that he had done great things. They had seen and heard of many of his miracles, his healings. Maybe that, you know, some of them even knew that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And now what do they say? They, they mock. They say he cannot save himself. Was Jesus on the cross because he couldn't save himself? No, but that's how their twisted, unbelieving minds warped it. They, they, they took what they saw and they interpreted it in all, the wrong, in all the wrong ways due to their wickedness and unbelief. And they say, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Would seeing and believing matter if he came down from the cross? 
There'd be nothing, there'd be no point in believing. You know, they, they echoed the words of those passers by. They didn't know what they were saying. They mistook Christ willfully suffering for the sins of his people as weakness. It wasn't weakness that kept Christ on the cross. It was his strength and his love for sinners. He's coming down to seek and save that which was lost. And then they say, you know, if, if he'd come down, then they'd believe. No, it's because he died and rose again. And by the work of the Spirit that many have believed and will believe unto salvation. And if Christ had come down from the cross, if he had saved himself, there would be no hope of salvation for sinners like us. None. And there would not be much point in believing in him. And that, that mocking that Jesus endured, it brings to mind the words of Isaiah that we read earlier in the service this morning. In Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, it says, He, Jesus, the Messiah, was despised and rejected by men. That's this text, despising him, mocking him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one, and as one from whom men hide their faces. They can't even look at him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, as the song says, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. What does that mean? We esteemed him as under the wrath of God for his own sins. Oh, God's getting him back. No, God's getting him back for us. It says, but, Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, you know, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has done what? Laid on him... On the cross, the iniquity of us all. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, and we esteemed him not. But it was our disgrace, your disgrace and mine, that he bore in our place. We, in a sense, thought of him, if we we were there, as if he were bearing the scorn and mocking that he deserved, when the truth of the matter is, he was bearing the scorn, mocking, and contempt that you and I deserve for our sins. The Lord Jesus was despised and rejected by men, pierced and crucified on the cross, not for himself, but for us in our place. He was despised and rejected so that sinners like you and me could be justified in the sight of God, forgiven and accepted by him as righteous in his sight, only through the righteousness of Christ. He was rejected that you and I might be accepted by God. He was rejected by men and pierced and crucified that you and I might be even adopted as God's children. That's why he endured what he endured in all of the mocking and the cross that he went through. Well, the next thing we see in the text, which is really all through the text, is not just the mocking of Christ, but the cross of Christ. Now, the mocking goes all the way through the text, doesn't it? We've already kind of read and seen that. Uh, but the, the next thing that Mark focuses our attention on, and he does it a number of times, is Christ's cross, his crucifixion. Our text is practically filled, not just with mentions of the cross and crucifixion, but if, if you were paying attention as we were reading it, it's practically filled with Old Testament prophecies that were being fulfilled. Mark doesn't spell them out. Mark doesn't stop each time and say, this fulfilled that, this fulfilled that. But it really happens all through what we're reading here. Now, Mark was writing to, uh, at least originally, to a mainly Gentile audience in Rome, a non-Jewish audience, so 
to a non-Jewish audience, him stopping every five seconds and saying, this fulfilled that, this fulfilled that, they might not be as quite as concerned about something like that as, say, Matthew's audience was. If you read Matthew's Gospel, one of the differences that you'll see in Matthew's Gospel is, over and over and over again, he says, this happened to fulfill what was written by the prophet, you know, Isaiah or David or whoever. Mark kind of just tells the story and lets the reader connect those those dots. And the first thing we see in our text about the cross is the place. The place was called Golgotha, which, what does he say that means? The place of a skull. Now, people are divided over what, why that is, why did they call it that. Uh, many have suggested, and I think they might be correct, that the hillside resembled in some way a skull. Maybe maybe there were, you know, divots or caves in the side of the hill that resembled eye sockets and things, but it had the look about it, uh, it resembled a skull, and I think that's probably the logical conclusion. Now, in that, there might be a subtle hint, in fact, I think there is, back to the very first pronouncement of the gospel found in Scripture, and that's in Genesis 3.15. It's often called the, the proto-first evangelion, the first gospel, the first announcement of the gospel, and that's where the Lord promised that the Messiah, the offspring or seed of the woman, of Eve, uh, would redeem his people by doing what? Crushing or bruising the head of the serpent. The the, the serpent was going to bruise or crush his heel, but he was going to crush or bruise the serpent's head. You know, I kind of picture it in my head as I would never do this. I would, you know, look for something else to kill a snake with, but it's as if a snake is biting at your heel while you crush its head with your foot. Well, what is Jesus doing, in a sense, on the cross? He's on top of a hill that resembles a skull. The place is even called Golgotha. Uh, even Calvary means the same thing. It's a place of a skull, or you know, the, the head. And he's crucified feet down on top of this thing that looks like a skull, a place that looks like a skull. Him being crucified on that place of a skull showed that he was crushing the serpent's head even as he was being killed and his heel bruised on that cross. Verse 23, Mark says, They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They think that this was to deaden the pain, the suffering, kind of ease the suffering a little bit while they were uh, being executed. Now, he did not take it. In verse 24, Mark says that they were casting lots. The soldiers were casting lots, kind of gambling and drawing straws to take Jesus' garments. It says, They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, think about that. Notice how little detail Mark goes into about the actual crucifixion. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it. He just states a couple times simply, And they crucified him. It says it in verse 24 and verse 25. Now, how strange it might seem to us in the midst of all that to hear that the soldiers were kind of making sport of Christ, even gambling for his garments. They, they were treating it kind of like a trophy of sorts. Who gets to keep the king, you know, the king of the Jews, who gets to keep his, uh, his garments and things? But think about this. Even that, you might know, was a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. Psalm 22, Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18. Listen to the words of David here. David is describing something that he himself never literally went through. He's describing someone else. He's talking about Christ, his greater son. It says, for dogs, now dogs, Gentiles, the soldiers were Roman, right? For dogs encompass, they surround me, encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have what? Pierced my hands and feet written a thousand years before the cross, hundreds of years before crucifixion had been invented. 
He says, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And here it is, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. thousand years before it happened, David describes it as if he was standing there, writing it down, watching the whole thing come to pass. He's describing humiliation, you know, being stripped naked, having your garments, you know, gambled away and and taken. Did those soldiers know that even in this wicked act of theirs, they were fulfilling the prophetic scriptures? No. But in, in their wickedness and cruelty, they unknowingly fulfilled the prophecies and purposes of God in redeeming his people from our sins. God's purposes will come to pass. God makes sure of that. Look at verse 27. Mark says, And with him they crucified two robbers, or two insurrectionists, one on his right and one on his left. Now the Messiah was crucified, executed, made to suffer, and die a criminal's death. This was a capital punishment. He wasn't mugged on the side of the road. He was executed by the state. He was crucified between two robbers. That, too, is a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Now, you might notice as you're reading, if you're reading the ESV or some other translation, that if you're catching, if you're, if you're, if you're careful to notice the verse numbers, you notice one of them is missing in many of your Bibles. Now, there's no verse 28 in some of our Bibles. Um, some translations include it, but put it in brackets or put it down in a footnote. Uh, and what they mean by that is that uh, many textual scholars don't believe that verse was in the original text of Mark. Uh, but because it's not found in what they believe to be the earliest manuscripts, if you have a King James Version, you will find verse 28 in, in the King James Version, and this is what it says. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, uh, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now that's a reference to Isaiah 53.12. We read that also this morning. Isaiah 53.12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because why? He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, not himself, right? And makes intercession for the transgressors. We don't get to that in our text, but he even does that on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even tells one of those transgressors he was numbered with, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Now, it's it's true that Mark rarely, if you have read through Mark, you'll know that he rarely points out explicitly the Old Testament scriptures that were fulfilled in Christ's actions and words. But whichever way you look at it, verse 28, whether you think it belongs or not, it includes and contains a true statement and speaks biblical truth. In fact, this very same truth, the very same verse is pointed out in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, where Jesus himself quotes it and quotes Isaiah in that verse saying this, For I tell you that this this scripture must be fulfilled in me. What scripture? And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So whether or not you think verse 28 belongs or not, the scripture still testified to the truth of that statement, that Jesus being crucified between two thieves, two robbers, was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, was numbered with the transgressors so that transgressors like us could be justified in the sight of God and numbered among the children of God. That's why Jesus was numbered with transgressors. Verses 29 to 30, Mark says, Those who passed by, there's another group, those who passed by derided him, 
wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, even that was a fulfillment of Scripture, of Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 22. Always keep finding ourselves coming back to that psalm. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, it says this. Again, this is David writing, but he's really putting words in Christ's mouth. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Mark doesn't spell it out, but everybody except uh, the one man in this text is mocking him. All who see me mock me. They, they make mouths at me. They, what is he, they wag their heads. What does Mark say the passers-by did? Wagging their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. All who saw him mocked him. That's exactly what Mark tells us in these these verses. Everyone mocked Jesus as he, as he was being crucified and killed. The soldiers, those who passed by, the chief priests and the scribes. And as if that were not enough, what does he add in verse 32? He says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It's almost hard to comprehend that's even possible. And yet they did. Um, not only that, but even the passers-by wagging their heads is a literal fulfillment to the letter of what David said there in Psalm 22, 7. A thousand years before it happened. And the word of God foretold it. See how the scriptures proved themselves true once again, over and over and over again, especially in the cross and resurrection of Christ. See how the scriptures, you know, we, we say that the scriptures are self-attesting. They bear witness of their own validity and truth and authority as being the word of God. See how the scriptures attest to us that they really are the very word of God. See how Christ alone fulfills all of those prophetic scriptures down to the letter. And yet people will still mock and not believe. How confident you and I should be in the inerrant authoritative word of God. How sure we should be of all the promises of God in the gospel, which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. When we look at the sufferings of Christ, especially his death on the cross, uh, we see that, you know, there's a few things that we see. We see what our sins truly deserve. We see what our, our sins really look like. At the foot of the cross, we might see our sins the right way. That hymn we just sung, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, uh, one of its verses says it like this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. That's all of us. My sins aren't that bad. None of us think of our sins as we really ought to. But he says this, the the, the hymn writer says, Here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. If you want to know how bad our sin really is and how guilty we really are before a holy God outside of Christ, where do you look? The cross. He says, Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God. That's the price it took to pay for my sins and yours. That's how, that's the bad news. That's how bad our sins really are before a holy God. Those, those of us who think that, oh, we're, you know, God will, God will accept me. I'm better than so and so need to look at the cross again because Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He had none. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And the hymn also goes on to say that, that the cross is where you and I can see the love of God for sinners rightly as well. It says, here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost Christ, the rock of our salvation, Christ the name of which we boast. 
Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrificed to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Christ is the Lamb of God who was wounded for sinners because what does Isaiah say? With his wounds, or by his stripes, King James, with his wounds we are healed. His death on the cross was a sacrifice that cancels or wipes away all of our guilt and sin for those of us who trust in Christ for salvation. So this morning I have to ask, whether you've been here a member a long time or, or first-timer, uh, have you built your hope on Jesus Christ and his cross and resurrection? What is the, the, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his, own, his only son, why? That whoever believes in him, trusts in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. If, if your hope of heaven is in Christ alone and his cross, you will never be confounded. If your hope of heaven is in Christ, your hope is sure. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for passages like this that we have the, the great privilege of, of reading uh, that we, we live on this side of the cross, that we don't uh, just look at it through types and shadows and prophecies and promises, that we get to see on, on the other end of the fulfillment of all those things. And the fulfillment of all those things was in Christ, your, your Son, our Lord, our Redeemer and King. And we, we give you praise and thanks that, uh, that you have given us clear testimony in your word, how Christ fulfills all those, so many Old Testament prophecies, we can't even begin uh, to number them all. And he fulfilled them all to the letter. And we thank you most of all, not just that he fulfilled scripture or prophecy, but that he did all that for our salvation from sin, that he bore uh, the chastisement that brought us peace. We thank you that you loved us enough to give your only begotten son, that he would love us enough to go through with that for our salvation. We ask that you would give us uh, grace by your spirit to, to estimate our sins rightly by looking at the cross, but not to stop there, that we might, uh, even if, if we haven't done it yet, that we might look to Christ and have life in his name, that we might see the love of God, your love for us sinners, that you, you sent your son to die for us, that the love of God is seen, that Christ died for sinners like us. And we thank you for that great love. We ask that you would uh, help us to, to understand just a little bit more the incomprehensibility of that great love for us that you have towards us in Christ, that we might be filled with gratitude and love for you, that we might be more and more uh, willing to, to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. And we just thank you for your great love for us. Give us grace to be witnesses, to be bearing testimony to the cross of our Savior. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.